0: why did the transgender movement catch us by surprise and how should we respond now that's the theme this week on the podcast and with that goal in mind we welcome rob smith to the podcast rob is a theologian who lectures in systematic theology and ethics at sydney missionary and bible college in australia he also serves as an honorary assistant minister at saint andrew's anglican cathedral in sydney Rob approaches the topic of the transgender revolution as a biblical theologian, as a historian of the movement as well, and as a pastor whose own family has been touched by gender dysphoria. It hits rather close to home for him. And we are all being hit by what he has called a transgender tsunami of gender fluidity in Western culture. Rob has completed extensive research of the history of how we got to now. The transgender movement, as you will hear, did not appear out of nowhere there is a backstory, And to tell it, here's Rob Smith.
1: Uh, Yes. Thank you, Tony. That's a marvelous question. It certainly didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, You can trace the roots uh, right back, really, I think. Well, you can go back to Genesis 3 if you want to, but uh, certainly in the modern period, you can go back to the Enlightenment and uh, then various developments uh, uh, subsequent to that. But uh, you're right to focus on the 1960s. That's certainly where Uh, A number of revolutions uh, came together, and uh, I guess uh, we're familiar with the the label of the sexual revolution, which of course is uh, a sort of broad umbrella, but there are a number of things going on there, I think, that uh, really set the stage, as you say, for the transgender revolution. Uh, Let me just uh, run through a number of aspects, I think, that are relevant. Uh, You've got the advent of the contraceptive pill in 1961, which uh, has the effect of severing sex from procreation. And that itself uh, then changed people's view of sex. It became a leisure activity uh, and something for pleasure rather than having uh, a procreative purpose embedded in it. And that, of course, then, uh, I guess, opened the door to increased sexual freedom uh, in a very new and pronounced way. So that's one factor. Uh, also on the sort of medical front, you've you've got the uh, well, not so much of the v- development of antibiotics. I mean, they've been around for some decades uh, before the 60s. But uh, but I guess the more effective treatment of uh, various sexually transmitted diseases and uh, a perception that therefore developed that uh, really people did not need to worry about the danger of STDs, and that again increased uh, sort of sexual experimentation. Okay, so those things are going on in the In the broader society, and I guess you could say sort of uh, pushed on by by medical development. Uh, Alongside of that, you've got various uh, social revolutions. The feminist revolution, perhaps, is um, the most obvious thing to 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 pinpoint here. And uh, again, at the heart of that, you've got a um, well. I guess the deconstructing of the way that uh, people tended to think about sexuality and gender. You've got Simone de Beauvoir's uh, very famous uh, statement that one is not born a woman, but one becomes a woman. Uh, that becomes very, very important for later queer theory and transgender ideology. Um, you've, of course, got the problem that feminists are grappling with, that, that biology uh, equals destiny, although they're trying to work out how to stop biology equaling destiny. And one of the solutions, of course, advocated by various feminist uh, uh, writers at the time uh, was to eliminate sex distinctions. Uh, okay, so that that's again a big part of the the background to the, the transgender uh, phenomenon. And then, of course, you've got the homosexual revolution, which is um, happening again uh, in the uh, late fifties, sixties, uh, and seventies. Um, you know, uh, I guess there's an, a broader acceptance of sexual nonconformity. You've got the idea that uh, biological sex perhaps does not determine a person's sexual orientation um, and therefore begs the question, well, does it then, in fact, determine a person's gender? Uh, does there really have to be this necessary connection between biological sex and, and, uh, and gender identity? So all of those things, I, I think, are, are bubbling out of the sexual revolution of the 60s and uh, paving the way for the transgender revolution. Now, you asked the question, uh, why didn't we see it coming? Well, it, it, it was there to be seen, interestingly. I, one of the things I've done is sort of trace back some, some of the history over the last 100 years or so of, uh, of the development of uh, the transgender movement. I mean, back in 1964, you've got the uh, creation of the Erickson Educational Foundation, which was designed to promote both gay equality and transgender equality. Um, and that was set up by a trans man uh, named Reed Erickson, uh, 66, you've got a, a significant publication of a book called The Transsexual Phenomenon, uh, as well as the, um, the the famous Compton Cafeteria riots in uh, San Francisco. Um, so there are things happening there in the 60s. Uh, even 68, you've got the International Olympic Committee wrestling with well, what do we do with transsexuals who want to compete in the Olympics, and they uh, um, they had to make a determination about that. Uh, and then uh, perhaps the little known fact is that uh, in the Stonewall riots uh, in 69, there, there are transgender patrons uh, involved in that whole episode. And uh, so the, the transgender revolution, same-sex revolution, have really been uh, tied together in a variety of ways from the start. But I think, I, I think it's just a prominence of the, um, the homosexual revolution that perhaps is obscured the transgender revolution that was, as it were, just tucked in behind. Uh, and now that same-sex marriage has uh, been realized in many parts of uh, the Western world, uh, it's in some ways moved to, to one side so that the transgender movement is now, um, as it were, stepped forward to be the uh, sort of major point of social and legislative and other kinds of engagement. Um, So, there you go. That's my best uh, attempt to try and make sense of of how we've got here, uh, how this has sort of come upon us seemingly out of nowhere, but in reality, uh, not out of nowhere.
0: No, that's a great summary of the backstory. I wish we had time for more of the history, but I want to stay focused on the here and now uh, from here on. As, As you can imagine, we get a lot of questions on transgenderism in the inbox of this podcast. And one of the most common questions, it seems, is that many Christians who are so far removed from transgender impulses themselves ask whether gender dysphoria is itself a phantom impulse, something that's merely culturally engendered, or is it real, is it tangible, and if so, how real is it? You're not far removed from this question. I mean, in your own uh, pastoral care and your personal experience, is gender dysphoria a real condition?
1: Yeah, well, thank you for this. Let's uh, perhaps just be clear for the listeners about what we're talking about here. Um, gender dysphoria—that—that uh, expression—is really, a, I guess, it's the latest medical um, diagnostic term for um, the experience of distress, which some people have when their psychological or emotional uh, gender identity or sense of gender doesn't match up with their biological or birth sex uh, previously and certainly in earlier versions of um, what 's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, that phenomenon was uh, referred to as gender identity disorder, but uh, I guess there was a move uh, again amongst the American Psychiatric Association to try and destigmatize um, that disorder and now it's, uh, I guess, well, being normalised in society, and uh, so 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 what's happened is that it's simply now the distress that the person feels it's being focused on. If a person has a mismatch between their sense of gender and their biology, uh, and they're not distressed by it, um, then they don't have any condition according to the uh, APA. They don't have gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria focuses in on the distress that uh, a person may feel and of course most do feel if they have this mismatch um so i hope that wasn't too convoluted but that uh, it's just important to under- understand what what exactly we're talking about now is it a real condition um well certainly it's a real experience condition uh, for those who have this sense of mismatch it, it, um, for, for many if not most it, it's profoundly distressing and uh anxiety producing and shame producing and uh, uh and depressive it's um it's a, a, an awful condition or affliction uh to bear. Uh, but I guess the key question lurking in there is what kind of condition is it? This again I think is where our, our culture is easily confused. Um and one of the perhaps confusing factors is that there there is uh a number of conditions that fall under the umbrella of intersex, where a person is born with uh, some kind of genital or biological ambiguity, and that certainly can give rise to gender dysphoria. Or, or you've had some some tragic stories, for example, of uh, you know a, a circumcision gone wrong, and then doctors making a decision to to turn a boy in, into a girl, to as as it were, to run deal with their mistake, and then this boy later on, of course, he's going to have profound gender dysphoria. Um, okay, so there, there are those kinds of, I guess, biologically created instances of, uh, of gender dysphoria. Um, but for those for whom there is no sort of biological ambiguity or, or uh, you know, any kind of intersex uh, ambiguity or anything of that kind, Uh, then we need to ask, well, what what is gender dysphoria for them? Well, I think the answer is quite clearly it's a psychological condition, um, not a biological or or you might even say ontological condition. Um, The problem is in the psychology. They feel like they're in the wrong body. They're not actually in the wrong body. It's not that you've actually got a man inside a woman's body or a woman inside a man's body. But clearly the person feels as if – They've been perhaps given the wrong body or, 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 or they, they feel that mismatch and, and, as I said, a very distressed bite. So if we understand that and understand that, that people really do suffer from this, it ought to evoke our compassion because it's a horrific uh, uh, affliction to bear. It's one of the reasons why the uh, suicide or attempted suicide rate uh, for those with gender dysphoria is uh, as high as it is. Um, so, uh, I hope that sort of helps. Perhaps, I know it's not a simple answer, but I hope it, it perhaps clarifies issues.
0: It do- yeah, it does. It does, yes. So, so, is it safe to assume the biological ambiguity is the minority condition with the psychological condition uh, being the ma- in the majority of cases?
1: Yes, I think that, that's certainly true. I, I mean, it's enormously difficult to get accurate figures, um, but uh, I think that, that is certainly uh, the case.
0: Interesting. Thank you, Rob. We have only begun the week. Rob will be with us all week answering a number of questions, and there are many. So what causes gender dysphoria? That's the next question I have for him tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Ask Pastor John podcast with guest Rob Smith from Sydney, Australia. For more details about this podcast, to subscribe to the audio feed or send us a question of your own, go to our online home at desiringgod.org forward slash askpastorjohn. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. I'll see you tomorrow.